welcome to How To Medieval, the how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. My name is Ari. And I'm Matt. And today we are joined by Benjamin Truska, who is going to be talking to us about classical era reenacting versus medieval era reenacting. Now, Ben comes to us as a budding professor of ancient history. He holds a bachelor's degree in not only classics, but also in history, as well as a minor in German. And he's a seasoned reenactor, having done impressions of Hoplites in the 5th century, 9th century Vikings, and he's done 15th century high medieval. He's also starting a new living history group out in his area in Missouri in the medieval time period. So he's going to be a wealth of information for helping us kind of see what is what are some of the differences you can expect if you decide to either come from a classical impression and lean towards trying to do something medieval as well, or you're a into the medieval era and you want to kind of dabble in ancient rome or classical greece so it'll be interesting to talk about these subjects thank you for coming on the show ben well thank you for having me i'm excited to be here cool so in your experience so far would you say that there are any like large major differences when it comes to the way you have to put together a living history impression for a much much more ancient impression compared to something like the Middle Ages? Well, yes and no. Um, there's a similarity in the sense that, you know, whenever you first start getting your gear and stuff, you kind of want to start from, you know, the ground up. So you'll get a tunic, uh, you know, sandals, or, you know, which I guess you can translate over to um, like a um, a doublet and, you know, uh, turn shoes and stuff of that nature. And then as you, you know, you can start getting gear as, you know, bracers, um, helmet, hoplon, or the shield, stuff of that nature. But there's the difference as well is that it's cheaper. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper, and there's nowhere near as much you need to get to do a classical impression as opposed to a uh, medieval one. Um, is that because there's fewer elements to the outfit? Because we know that medieval people wore a fair number of layers, or is it just that they're they're less well tailored because it's more primitive garments what do you mean by cheaper uh well it's just there's just not as much i mean you don't for instance um in ancient greece most common wear for just say a soldier was just a tunic you know and of course they would have a loincloth shirt but you just had the tunic and sandals and that's that could be pretty well good you know everyday wear if you wanted it to i mean obviously they had specialized clothing for certain events and stuff but if you're just going out for a reenactment and, you know, camping, um, something similar to uh, your guys's um, days of nights, then, you know, if you just had a tunic, maybe a um, a cloth that's long enough to act as kind of like a cape that you know, just put yourself over yourself to keep warm if need be. And then, you know, your armor and stuff, you're pretty well set. Hmm. Um, well, that's interesting. So how stratified was classic like an impression if you're looking to do an impression in, in ancient rome or classic greece or the outlying regions of that you know the pre-medieval time how stratified is the society because one of those big things that we always harp on in medieval reenacting is your social status that has a huge guiding factor in what type of fabrics you want to look for what type of cut of clothing what you may or may not have been allowed to wear or definitely afford now, I know that there were different classes 
depending on where you went in, in in the ancient world, but how much of an influence did that have? So, yeah, I mean, kind of like in the medieval period, um, there was there was a lot of, um, of the culture and the material culture that focused on your status and society. So, for instance, so I specialize in ancient Sparta. That's my bread and butter. So the tangent movie 300 both loved it and hated it because the material culture was off, but also Gerard Butler as Leonidas. So that was awesome. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to like the status and stuff. So I remember in one of your guys' previous episodes, you mentioned about how royalty had basically the dominance over the color purple. Well, in ancient Greece, it was very similar. Uh, it may not, it wasn't necessarily just limited to royalty because there was no, you know, Greece wasn't an entity as a whole as we think of it as today, you know, each city state was its own, well, micro state. But if you were, you know, of the upper echelons of, you know, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Well, I guess you could say kind of like nobility and you can afford it. Yeah, you would be wearing purple as much as you can. Um, and if somebody, you know, who's lower class even tried thinking about trying to get the color purple, well, that probably wasn't going to happen because it was an exuberant charge. And so they can just admire it from afar. But then when it comes to regular clothing, I mean, let me put it this way. There's a lot of versatility as well because slaves, for instance, you know, ancient Greece and Rome, they had slaves. But what's interesting is, you know, you don't want to be a slave, but at the same time, depending on your position as a slave within someone's household, you could actually wear finer clothing than somebody who's a free man within the city. It's because you you know you say you're the head you're a household slave, you work every day with your master, um, you know doing say like finances or uh, working in the markets. They're gonna and you're doing well. They're gonna treat you well and they're gonna get you some clothing because that also is a representation of their status as well. So if their slaves look good, you know, and they can afford clothing that is nice for slaves, and that means that they are in good standing as well. I think that's really cool because we see that. That kind of res we see that in like the retainers and the the lanes of high-ranking nobles that you can have these people who are technically unfree commoners who wield an incredible amount of influence and wealth. I mean, we think of Chaucer was as, you know as a I don't think he was a if I remember correctly and Matt you've done more studying this wasn't he a a Valain? wasn't he he wasn't even technically a a freeman himself for much of his career. And he was, you know, incredibly wealthy and influential. He, yeah, Chaucer's an interesting, I, I've been I've been reading a lot about Chaucer lately, and he, he is one of those interesting sort of moves between the worlds there, because he he wasn't really of a lane, but he, he wasn't, he, he was of a, he came from a wealthy, well-connected family, and, and having those connections, he got put into a service of an even wealthier better connected family um, at a very young age and and from there he actually sort of became for lack of better words like the sort of pretty boy servant where basically he was dressed up in in really fine clothes and paraded about to make the people that he worked for look rich and powerful that was and then he got went on to being other more important jobs and actual actual duties but but yeah, that was no, that was actually something that they did, especially in some of these large households. The you know the household they wanted to show off how rich they were and 
One way to do that is to dress up all your servants in really fine wares and basically parade them about. So that is an interesting connection between the two time periods. So, uh, it, Ben, you talk about, I like how you use that, you know, um, the the exorbitant charge, right, for the color purple. Speaking of exorbitant charges, you say that this could be cheaper because you have less stuff, but how easy is it to find these items and and quality items i know the internet basically puts a lot of things at at, at our you know doorstep in a number of days but the rank newbie doing a search for you know roman helm online we get flooded with images of the you know the spiked gladiator helm from gladiator that, that sort of skull face helmet that um russell crowe wore how easy is it to actually find good items out there so yeah i mean that that's that's a great question it is it's it's not that easy believe it or not so there's a lot of okay let me put this display the stuff that i have received and then i'm continuing to get i've actually gotten from uh sites that sell medieval arms and armor and stuff of that nature uh because you know there's usually they can kind of extend a little further back in history and they'll have a few things but when it comes to say you know yeah just googling uh um centurion helmet or something of that nature you'll find you know a zillion different styles and types made out of different materials it is not that easy to find a good quality one kind of like with purchasing medieval arms and armor you have to vet it you have to look through and scrutinize and kind of it's best if you have some sort of like written material or if you're able to look at, say, mosaics or paintings, because those will actually usually have a pretty good description and detail that if you you know, stare hard enough at this picture of the helmet that you're wanting to buy, um, you'll see that like, you know, this might not be the quite right. Like style, so you don't want to get that or you'll find one that um, it looks just right. However see uh it, it's missing a plume and you're wanting to be a um you know be in charge of a roman platoon so you'll need your plume to show that you're a leader for the roman legions it's 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 you got to vet it really hard it's it takes time and effort and practice i know for instance trying to find a, a corinthian helmet which i'm going to take a little tangent real quick for anybody who has seen the movie 300 or any movie about ancient greece and the hoplites and you see that helmet that covers the cheeks with the nasal piece that comes down and they've got their plume and it's you know brass colored or bronze actually um that's called the corinthian helmet i know a lot of people want to call it the spartan it's not it was actually created by their allies in corinth hence the term corinthian and during the height of the classical period everybody started using it because it was a really big heavy and well-guarded helmet but i digress but trying to find a good one was not easy to do because i found all sorts of them where the uh the cheek coverings would open up too much or the angle just wasn't quite right or i found them that had the um the crest on the forehead it extended up way too much like how they did in the movie 300 there's a million different versions of gerard butler's helmet online that you'll find as well not accurate <laughs> it's it takes a lot of time to really sit down look at base paintings, like I said, or reading through uh, um, literature to figure out a helmet that's 
actually going to fit the correct um, style and time frame. I don't, I don't know if that actually answers the question or not. <laughs> I hope it does. So some of the harder things are things like armor, because you need to get the lines right, you need to get the curvature right, and there's a lot of, you know, armorers of the day, so to speak, became proficient in making good quality armor because that was their living, and now we sort of are resurrecting the idea without ever subjecting it to, well, I made Joe a helmet and he died, and I made Bob a helmet and he lived, maybe I should start making more helmets like Bob's. And so we don't, we, we do see a lot of those problems there in the in the recreation market where they're just kind of made based off of what looks kind of right. But when it comes to setting up an outfit, like what kind of challenge is there to creating your basic, you know, basic Roman or Greek tunic? And how universal are those kinds of garments? Because when we look at the medieval era, we're like, okay, well, you can probably get away with a, you know, G35 style gown for a ton of different impressions, depending on how you dress it up. You can go, you can pretty much build multiple cultures around that style garment. But of course, the, the ancient world was interacting with a lot of really isolated insular cultures as well. And I, I find that there, I, I worry that perhaps sometimes we think the farther back we go, because it's harder and harder to document, we kind of just broad stroke and be like, okay, well, everyone wore this tunic and call it a day yeah so if you're trying to be a hoplite or some sort of heavy infantryman which was most likely a hoplite if you just had a standard white tunic or cream colored tunic that came down to um the middle to the lower section of your thigh you could probably get away with a lot of a lot of um a couple centuries actually so say you know from the late 500s up until about the mid to to alexandrian era you know alexander the great if you had that style of tunic you're probably good but the armor is going to be different so the armor that i have is bronze i mean it's actually made out of steel but it's like you know getting bronze armor is not that easy to do but it's a bronze cuirass that you know it's the muscle shirt that some people will call it where you know you have the six pack and the the packs and stuff that's my style, but there's a bunch of others they can go for. I am not a blacksmith, so I had to purchase this. If you are a fantabulous blacksmith, you might be able to make it, and that'd be awesome, and that'd be really cool. Uh, but there's one thing that you can make. It's called a uh, linothorax, basically a linen chest. It's where it's kind of like a predecessor to uh, Kevlar. You got multiple layers that have been glued and um, together and compressed, and they make a uh, chest plate that you know, it, depending on what hits it, it might actually stop, say, a couple of arrows. If the guy isn't super strong, it might break a, or it might stop a spear from hitting you in the chest. If he is really strong, it will go through. You're going to feel it's going to hurt, but you might survive. So it's, you know, because they're usually about 40 layers deep of, you know, this material that's been compressed together. Uh, let's see. I'm trying, I'm trying to think. So, like I said, the tunic is a good way to... Um, cover a couple centuries the main ones that a lot of people cover so you know the classical period and the beginning of the hellenistic period that's what i mainly focus on so once it gets to say you know rome conquering greece and then syria and then subsequently egypt you know with cleopatra and around that time period i don't really know much about the greek clothing standards because it had been integrated so much with a bunch of other cultures around the mediterranean 
So I, I kind of pigeonholed myself in that aspect. But I'm sure that if you, you know, if you looked around on the internet or read some sources, they'll probably give you a decent idea of what you can look out for. But if you're trying to go for the classical period or uh, early Hellenistic period, if you're, like I said, if you're doing the uh, military mindset, just wearing a tunic and then going from there, you'll probably be pretty good. Was there any color coding? Did did certain colors signal things? We talked a little bit about purple, but you know, was color used to try and indicate status or affiliation? Was was there a lot of jewelry? How because we know that we we tend to see our nobles in the Middle Ages like really adorning themselves and in, in jewelry or sumptuous fabrics or you know obnoxious tasseling and bells and dagging and all really goofy stuff. How much of that do we see? Prior to in the in, prior to the medieval era in the classical era. All right. Well, yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, there's there's actually a lot of jewelry, believe it or not. So if you look at the Mycenaean slash Bronze Age period, which is about 3000 BCE to 1100 BCE, with near the end of um the Trojan or well, the mythological Trojan War, the Mycenaeans, you know, they had gold. I mean, they you know they had uh, earrings rings necklaces and stuff of that nature if um and then if you're a woman you know your husband or father most likely husband if he was wealthy enough you know he's gonna buy you a nice gold ring with a uh a pretty jewel in it you know it could be a uh, turquoise jewel it could be anything from all around uh, the european world really i mean it's just just depends on how wealthy they are uh you're husband father benefactor whoever it is but as you get to the classical period and the uh, early hellenistic period it kind of varies when it comes to jewelry it kind of varies depending on the city state province if you want to call it so for instance in sparta i mean i'm sure you guys have heard the term you know going spartan being very austere living beneath your means if you were a spartan uh if you were just a common everyday spartan rather you you probably didn't have jewelry you you may have gotten uh, your wife some nice jewelry, but for the most part, you kind of, you know, you, you want to look like you're not poor. You want to be looking well-groomed, but you don't want to be super flamboyant because that is a, uh, to them, that's amoral to be showing off your wealth. But if you're in Athens and you are really wealthy, you know, you're a statesman, yeah. You're, you're going to be wearing rings. You probably might have a nice necklace, might even have a bracelet. Your wife is definitely going to have some really pretty uh, jewelry. In fact, there's even a um, archaeologist have discovered a uh, hairpin that was made out of ivory. And what it was is they, they carved it it's from one piece, but they carved it to where they caused like a little chain in this hairpin near the top that has a little uh, circular. Um, just loop that's free floating in there. And that was all from one piece that craftsmen had just chiseled out and refined it. And so that was, it would have been very expensive, but it was a hairpin. Hmm. I've seen those, I've seen that trick with wood. People will make chain link out of sticks of wood where they carve through and actually cut out, you know, they cut through the links that they don't have to assemble the link together. But I don't think I've ever heard of that done with ivory before. That's pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, it may not have been ivory, but it was definitely bone. Ivory mm-hmm. would have been also extremely expensive. I mean, you know, it, yeah, I mean, it just 
you, you basically would have had to have been the archon of a city. Archon meaning like primary uh, politician or statesman. And then if you you know you mentioned color as well. So obviously you know going to Sparta, everybody thinks of the color red. Well you know that's that, that is accurate. Um, during say the Persian Wars, the uh, Spartans would have had um, uh, if they weren't wearing say like a red tunic, they may have had a uh, small red cloak with them. But then as you get to the Peloponnesian Wars. 50 years later, then yeah, all the Spartans were trying to keep a nice, good uniformity, so they're all wearing red cloaks, tunics. They all had red plumes in their uh, on their helmets. I mean, they you know that was that was their color. But if you look in Athens, you know, if, I don't know if you uh, gentlemen have actually played um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey made by UD, Ubisoft not. back in 2018. Okay. I, I played, yeah, I played the original game. one. <laughs> The series is my, I love it for the historical stuff, but um, the Odyssey, though, um, you'll see that Athens, they take the colors blue and white, and that's not, you know, incorrect per se, but in Athens, they were all free citizens, and so they could basically wear whatever colors they wanted on the battlefield, um, and in fact, it even started kind of like that off in Sparta initially, but as you get more city-states involved into conflicts, trying to figure out who's fighting for what side gets kind of difficult. So, you know, like Sparta, like I said, they took the initiative of just sticking with red. We're Sparta, we're red, go team. Uh, Athens, some people are like, well, it might make us a little bit more sense if we just started wearing blue. Cool. But it wasn't unheard of to have sea guys fighting for Athens wearing green or yellow, lots of yellow, actually. Uh, and then even in Thebes, you know, people think of like the sacred band. Some people think that they're, they would have just wear white. Yeah, they could have wore a lot of other colors. I mean, as it gets down to the you know, the Hellenistic period, they may have just stuck to white. I don't I don't know because I mean that's like I said that's not my bread and butter. But, but wasn't yeah, Rome was... also red? You said you said there was sometimes hard to figure out who was on which side because if if Sparta and Rome were both red, I mean I can't recall if they ever actually I think they they came to blows once or twice because I mean who had, didn't Rome fight? <laughs> So by the time Rome came into uh, Greece, Sparta was past its apex. It was okay. it was a shell of a city. They had by the time Rome came in, there was about 200 to 400 Spartiates, um, so full fledged Spartans. Whereas at the max of their height, they had 9,000. Hmm. So after the Peloponnesian War, Sparta just went to this massive decline. And then in 371, at the Battle of Leuctra against Sparta versus Thebes. Sparta lost half their uh, Spartan populace, and they just, they never regained it. Okay. Now, how did these kinds of garments compare to the rest of Europe? Because when we talk about medieval living history, we do tend to see a lot of people in mainland Europe up into, obviously, England was an incredibly influenced, uh, heavily influenced the culture of the medieval world, but obviously... There was not so much of that focus. However, I do know, obviously, that there was presence throughout Europe of what we would consider classical Greek and Roman-type culture. Where do we see these different... Do we see much of a difference in the way we would represent ourselves in material culture? Was was the sort of everybody kind of in that minimalist style, or do we see a lot of variations once we leave the Mediterranean? I'm actually not entirely sure if, uh, if I know how to answer that question correctly. So the thing is, is um, 
as so Greece actually spread out through all the Mediterranean. In fact, they were actually in there was a city state in the southern France area, uh, Massilla, which I think is modern day, um, not Marseille or something, it's something, something like that, but it's in southern France. Um, it just it also depended on what city sponsored that growing community. So where they came from, you know, because they would brought their ideals, material culture with them. But once they got to this, you know, these different regions and they realized there was already a um, a populace there, a lot of times that, you know, they, they intermingled because you kind of have to. If they didn't go to war, they intermingled with mm-hmm. um, the locals there and the uh, clothing um, the material culture kind of blended itself. So the only real way, like, material culture that I think that kind of stayed prevalent between um, Greece and wherever else was most like was kind of like Italy because um, with the Etruscans and even the uh, early Romans or the Latins, they were wearing Corinthian helmets or Corinthian helmet inspired helmet, Corinthian inspired helmets. Um, and, you know, their tunics were similar and they actually Rome used to have a phalanx formation. It wasn't until the Samnite Wars did Rome shy away from the phalanx formation? So uh, it's just, but for the most part, as they went out and spread throughout the Mediterranean, they kind of, um, you know, they adopted their own different customs and cultures and whatever, whoever they were there with, they kind of intermingled with. And so they just blended the cultures. So I know that it's always easier to reenact as part of a group especially when you're talking about societies like ancient societies and medieval societies, which are much more communal than, say, we are now. You know, that you tend to have people around you more often than, than we sometimes are able to represent. How, how does that influence being a reenactor on your own of a, such as like a hoplite? Because a hoplite would normally be part of a larger team, right? And you don't usually have individual hoplite soldiers running yeah so if you look at say um, the macedonian phalanx standard formation it's a phalanx of 256 men i don't even know if there's 256 men in the u.s that (laughs) do hoplites right (laughs) um that'd be pretty cool if we can actually get together and make a massive formation but um yeah (laughs) um see so a typical hoplite probably had you know was a hoplite acted a lot like a knight, really, because he was the heavy infantryman. Now, I know the knights were cavalry, but classical period and uh, early Hellenistic period, Greece did not have cavalry, or it was a very small section of their military force. And so if you were a hoplite, you know, you were an infantryman, you could afford heavy armor, you could afford being in the front lines. Um, you probably had a couple retainers. Um you know, guys to help keep your armor polished and your shields in good shape, sharpened. Um, they would also have your rations. They would bring the, uh, your rations and cook it. Um, like in Sparta, they had a uh, system to where if you were what's called a hippontes, which is basically a youthful man, uh, you weren't quite ready for actual battle, but you had like a mentorship program um, with an older Spartan who is either full-fledged, well, probably full-fledged, and uh, he would teach you about the ways of being a, um, a Spartan warrior, citizen, scholar, uh, kind of like a knight and a squire would be, and in a, 
I don't know if this is a similar aspect. Um, they also practice what's called pederasty. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. It's a homoerotic relationship between an older man and a um, um, post-puberty young man who hasn't fully reached adulthood. So I guess adolescence. Um, it's where the older man would teach them, like I said, you know, uh, academics, religion, culture, society, you know, all the things that makes a good citizen. And in return, it was expected that that young man would um, do favors for the older man as well. I don't, I don't want to get into the graphic detail. <laughs> I think we we all get where the conversation is going. Yeah. yeah. So, so just like someone who's doing an independent night impression, they're doing it with the understood conceit that they would be otherwise surrounded by vassals of some sort. They'd have squires, they'd have pages, they'd have ostlers in their camp. They they would not be wandering around alone. They would have servants that would be attached to them for various reasons because of retinue or because of feudal obligations or whatever. And the same thing goes with heavy, heavily armored, sort of the, the more attractive impressions of classical Greece, you know, the the heavily armored guys would also have a support network with them that we just have to understand ahead of time that we're not accurately representing because we don't own other human beings. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. I I know that these heavy infantry guys were were surrounded by people, but did the did classic Greece have a concept of like the scout or the the light trooper, somebody who may more reasonably so I know that some people like to put together impressions of like archers or yeomen in medieval England because you know you can reasonably say I'm out doing a scouting mission or I'm I'm you know I'm a woodsman or I'm uh something like that. And there are sort of small subsets of medieval culture where you have a little more freedom to put together a an, an impression that is legitimately on its own. Was there anything like that in classic Greece that people might be able to turn to if they're uncomfortable not having the people around them to flesh out and give context to their impression? Yeah, I mean, to an extent. So a lot of the Greeks, you know, um, you know, the, the more people you have, the better your skills will be. But if you're trying to do scouting stuff, you could easily be something that's called a slinger. Uh, it's very easy to do. Basically, like I said, you know, if you have that a tunic, right? If you have a tunic, a nice belt to keep your um, the bottom portion or your loincloth from falling off and stuff like that, um, and you have a big strap, uh, yeah, strap of leather. All you have to do is just pick up a rock, pop that in there, and you know, just pew. So they had those, you know, they had rock hurlers or slingers, and then you know, they they were the kind of guys that could, um, you know, they could run through the forest, hide, duck, you know, try and get the whole scouting party uh, going on, you know, learn. What the enemy is doing, where they're at, but um, you you know you can do that. So if you wanted to just say like, oh you know I want to get into a classical reenactment, but I can't afford to be a hoplite, that's perfectly fine. You can do something like that, or you can if you want to take a step up, you can be what's called a peltast. A peltast was a gentleman who um, you know they were lightly armored. They may have had a lanothorax, they may not have. Uh, they might have you know some greaves, but they've got they have spears uh, or javelins. And uh, they would just in a small shield about the size, eh, about a foot in uh, diameter, and they could just 
throw javelins at people. That was their main job. They were the skirmishers. Um, you know, and then it doesn't cost, again, nowhere near as much to be fully armed. Um, you actually don't see those a lot because, you know, much like medieval enactment, everybody wants to be a knight or in the medieval reenactment, in the classical, everybody wants to be a hoplite, namely a Spartan because, you know, movies and books, etc. Um, but there's an underrepresentation of Peltas, um, slingers, or other types of skirmishers. Um, trying to think of a good one that's, if you want, well, I guess cavalry, you know, they were really expensive, so never mind. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of other groups. Even if you actually wanted to be a hoplite, you could still be a hoplite and not have a lot of armor. Uh, in the, if you had a lot of armor, you know, you were a veteran, you've saved up money, you're wealthy and stuff, but you could, if you were wealthy enough to afford um, a helmet, um, your dory, which is the spear, and a uh, the Aspis shield or the Hoplon shield, you could be a Hoplite, theoretically. In fact, even when you say, like, when I was mentioning about Elutra in 371, by that time, the Spartans, they pretty well abandoned all their armor except for the uh, Pelos helmet, which is looked a lot like a um, open-faced bassinet, and um, and their shield and the spear, and that's pretty much all they really had because that shield is three feet in diameter. You know, it's a big shield; it's going to protect you. Mm-hmm. So. so now, Ari has um, some experience doing you know, maritime reenactment, and the, we know the ancient Greeks were a seafaring um, civilization. How would somebody go about doing like a a Greek sailor impression? Uh, well, you would need a boat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, say even if you wanted to put together someone who was ashore. See, like in 19th century living history, there was a clear uniform where even if you weren't in the navy, it was very identifiable as to who was a sailor versus other like. Uh, Do- even dock workers or people who worked in cities in the 19th century, just the clothes you would wear out at sea were so much different than what you would wear at home. And we don't see as much of that in the Middle Ages. So you don't have, there aren't nearly as many tells that you're a sailor. And if you were like to be, you know, if you were like, oh, I, I'm a, I'm in the bar, but I'm a, I work on a cog going across the channel. Like you wouldn't really be able to tell so much in a medieval impression was there a significant difference between how people rest at sea uh, than they did necessarily at home in classic greece is i think that's where you're trying to go with it matt yeah no absolutely yeah um so a lot of the uh sailors were actually slaves or they were people that were so poor that they kind of sort of sold themselves into slavery to make money um and they, you know, they were the rowers, and there was there wasn't a whole lot of um, ship to ship combat in the sense that you're not going to like put two ships up next to each other. People are going to jump over to one side or another, you know, like pirates and our of us, matey, and you know, cut each other down. Yeah, they'll ha- they'll have some weapons and stuff, but if you looked at the front of um, a uh, trireme or, or a bireme. Or even a quinquinquine um, basically just means the level of rowers they have. So two levels of rowers, three and four and five. Um, you have that big giant um, ram at the front of their ship, 
all that ram you know can it could be just wood but it's usually probably covered in bronze or some sort of metal alloy because you're going to ram another ship right i know there's no video but i just smacked my hand with my other hand <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna ram other ships you're gonna try and broadside them and so you don't, you know there's since there's not as much hand-to-hand -hand combat the need for armor is very minimal um a lot of the guys you know they would just have the clothes on their back and they would just row now they're you know there's gonna be a few guys that you know guards that they're gonna wear armor because they're trying to keep the slaves in check or make sure people aren't falling out um not falling out of the ship, but as in like getting too, you know, dehydrated, burned up in the sun, et cetera. So they can rotate, rotate people out or they have to use a whip, they'll use the whip. Um, so it kind of depends on what you want to do. If you want to, if you want to be a sailor, that's a freeman, you know, just show up wearing sandals, um, a, uh, a kind of a long shirt, like I said, you know, like pretty much like a tunic style of clothing. Cause you're not going to be super wealthy. You're not going to wear, you know, extravagant uh, clothing, just something that you're not afraid to get dirty. And if you want to go out in front of the public, work up a sweat because these guys and get a really nice tan because these guys were, I mean, they were as brown as can be and they were hot and sweaty and grimy and just nasty looking. Um, so if you want to do that, feel free. If you, you know, and I guess you could also say that you could be a, a slave that's on a, a ship as a rower as well. Um, if you wanted to be, like I said, one of the guards, you can. You know, maybe wear a linothorax. You might have a helmet. You might not. Um, like I said, you could theoretically bring a whip with you. I don't, I don't know if I would if I was going to a reenactment because some people are going to get worried, and there's always one guy who's going to snap it, and it actually comes back and hits him in the face. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, some people believe in that kind of thing. Call it karma. <laughs> yeah. So, help me with a concept here that I, I'm struggling with a little bit. You said someone may sell themselves into slavery to make money now i realize that slavery in the classical concept had kind of it still existed a little bit but it primarily morphed into sort of serfdom and i'm just because of what i've read and i understand i can get my head around buying or selling yourself back into serfdom from uh freeman status not so much because you're making money, but because your expenses are less. You have less to spend because you don't have to upkeep the status of being a freeman and the rents and things that come with it. Uh, being a serf lowers the effectively lowers your expenses in a way. And to really put way too much generalization on it, but in my, I guess maybe just the word slave doesn't seem to attach itself in any way to wages in my mind. So how would you make money or was it that you would make money for your family how did being a slave temporarily or permanently help you in that situation i may have chosen a poor word to use i, I didn't mean sell yourself into slavery as in like you're an actual slave that could have been done uh to, that way you are brought into a fold and you know your family will be fed you'll be fed and, cl and clothed and um taken care of in that aspect but i meant it kind of like a serfdom type deal where you are downtrodden you're down on your luck you just you know you're you had a really bad crop yield you one year and you have a really small farm you can't afford to feed your family and the only thing that's open is athens you know with their maritime exploits they need more rowers so you'll go up to a captain and be like i need money and stuff so i will be a rower 
And he's like, okay, well, it's going to be really hard on you. You know, we're going to treat you like garbage, but, you know, if you row for us, uh, we'll pay you this modicum amount of whatever we end up getting from our uh, exploits, and you can use that to feed your family. So it was more like an indenture than it was like slavery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there, right. were also, there were also some people that were so poor and in debt that they were kind of – they were forced into slavery because there was no way they would ever work at all. So okay. that was more of the government taking control. It's like, sorry, dude, you just can't afford to be a free man anymore, so you're a slave now. Yeah, that – I mean, that does suck if that's what happens to you. Uh, yeah, that would be no good at all. So I have a question about Spartan culture and specifically to sort of – to create the parallel here, medieval living history is plagued by a negative co-opting of a smaller subset of medieval living history, namely the Crusades and some of the co-opting of the culture around the Crusades, or, and to be completely fair, like a lot of legitimate Crusade uh, culture is, is associated with subsets of society that are not using them for living history purposes. They're using them for other political purposes. And I see things like the, quote, Spartan helmet being used everywhere from law enforcement to anti-government, Malon Lebe, however you actually say that, kind of uh, people. Do you see a lot of negative reactions to Spartan impressions because of this distortion when those symbols are used by people outside of living history for non-historical purposes. Yes, absolutely. And in, uh, everywhere. Um, so the uh, Molon Labe is what you're getting at. It's, uh, that's, I want to just take a time out real quick. It's technically pronounced uh, Malon Labe. People oh, say, yeah, I got Malone. that one all wrong. <laughs> it's all right. People just swap the uh, vowel sounds around, but it's, it's okay. Yeah, I see that all the time. In fact, um, so, I mean, I, I don't have a, you know, we don't have visual and stuff, but on my left forearm, I actually had the epitaph of Simonides, which is attributed to the uh, 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. And I've been called a white supremacist, racist, bigot, all the horrible things. I'm like, I just got it because I think it looks cool and it's important. I mean, it's, it's what I study. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, people... You know, like reenactments, if they see someone, you get one or two people, um, audience members come up to you. One is like, holy cow, that's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Woo, go Sparta. And the other is, oh, you're just a white supremacist who's, you know, coming out to the community and like, you know, taking this as your time to shine and throw out white power, which I do not support. I, I, I hate the fact that I just said that word or words. Yeah, you, you'll get that. It's just one of those things where you kind of have to take a deep breath, maybe take a step back. And then ask them, you know, ask that person, hey, would it be okay if I spent a minute or two with you talking to you why I'm doing this impression and why I think it's important? And you'll get some people that be like, no, absolutely not. You know, just let them go about their way. You know, you don't want to cause a scene for obvious reasons. Um, or they're like, okay, sure. You know, what, what do you have? And then you can explain it to them. And then whenever you do that, obviously you'll get one or two other um, responses of, oh, okay, that makes sense. Or, well, I understand, but I still don't agree with it. And of course, you know, you just go about your business. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of have to just take a deep, big, deep breath, collect your thoughts and see if you can explain the situation where people realize that you're not doing it because you support, support some sort of 
racial um, superiority complex or whatever. Um, and actually with that, same thing with Vikings. You know, like I said, I have a, um, a ninth century um, Viking inter- uh, impression of noblemen, basically. I mean, he's really nice tunic, fancy pants, you know, bracers, and um, got my hair pulled back, you know, looking all sorts of snazzy, walking around with my sword on the side, and be like, ha, 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 I am, you know, I'm Thorvald, ha, ha, persona. But, um, and some people are like, oh, you know, you're, you're a white supremacist because, you know, Hitler used to hearken back to, um, you know, the Vikings and the Aryan Brotherhood, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, I'm doing this because, A, Vikings were horrible people as they were. They were pretty cool. I mean, like, <laughs> England was terrified of the Vikings. And so, um, you know, they were fantastic warriors, but they were also farmers, which is kind of a neat little dichotomy. And so, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm portraying or doing this impression, portraying this person to show that there's more there's more nuance than just, you know, I'm a warrior. Uh, you know, we're the best, you know, Thor and Odin were. Yeah. Woo. It's more of, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Viking nobleman, but, you know, I, I have boats, I have land. But I also have an economy to run, you know, and I've got people to take care of. And then when they realize, that, like, oh, hey, you know, there's a lot more to it than just that. You're you're not an evil person. No, I may portray somebody who's killed a lot of people, but I'm not an evil person. <laughs> now, has this kind of issue ever discouraged you from doing what you do or altered where you went with an impression? either in specifically to avoid something or to maybe double down on myth busting if they with an impression. So the first time I got called a white supremacist for having, say, my tattoo on my forearm, it, you know, it really discouraged me. It wanted me to put on long sleeves, you know, and just hide it from the rest of the world. But then I kind of had a friend of mine who was like, no, man, that tattoo is really awesome. You know, be proud of it. You know, you got it for a reason. And so that kind of boosted me up a little bit. And I started thinking, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to come prepared. So, you know, make flashcards of potential responses or questions you'll get. And like I said, you know, try to guide the conversation to where you can explain why you're wearing your uh, gear and why you're uh, portraying a certain type of person. So I think if you go to a living history event or a, a Renaissance festival or what have you, just Take some mental notes and prepare and uh, try to have answers for any kind of question or outbursts you might get. I think you're you're approaching it the the, the right way, Ben. Um, there's there's the, always the issue of being sort of academically honest with a lot of with a lot of that, and there's some people who use those symbols and sayings in an unacademically honest way and, and it is that 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 honesty of you know like you said uh, trying to have that conversation and and explain the reasoning behind it uh, which which can be tough especially with sort of co-opted symbols and, and i'm not saying that every symbol we should be tried to, to save and explain it um like i I really believe like the swastika is a, is a dead symbol. Yeah, I don't care how many of the big the argument is like, well, it means peace and so many. It's like I, it's it's a 
Sometimes so you have to acknowledge you lost yeah, the fight. You exactly. lost the fight on that one. Yeah. Just let it let it go. But the I do. Swastika, think, sorry, I, real quick. The swastika used to be actually in a lot of Greek tapestries yeah. and tunics and stuff, but people, you know, nowadays are obviously getting rid of it for the obvious reasons. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 no that's good a good point. Good. Um, because it, it was it was a symbol that was used for a very long time, far and wide, very far reaching. But it's one of those like like Ari said, we gotta kind of have to say. We we lost the fight on that one. It, it does not mean anymore what it used to mean. We we gotta let it go. And it's it's tough because when those symbols start getting grabbed up like that, when you have a deeper connection to, you know, like the tattoo on your arm because of your field of study and you know, the Spartans being your sort of passion field of study. I think I think you did a you did a good job, you said, of sort of trying to have that conversation as to why you do it. And yeah, I think you're right. Unfortunately, you know, there, I know people who do Templar um, yeah, interpretations and it, it, it's, it's gotten rough because that has been another another field that has been co-opted in that manner of the academic dishonesty on some people's part. And trying to portray them and, and sort of there's always gonna be people who don't who don't believe you when you say when you say what you know why you do it and you're right i think you do you gotta you just gotta take that deep breath and move on sometimes as as long as you tried your best in that level of of academic honesty to to make your argument heard mm-hmm. i don't mean to steer away from the conversation a little bit but would you be willing to fill me in on the Templar uh, dishonesty thing? Because I, I I don't know. What, I, I just I don't know. Oh, it's just that the 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 whole the whole idea that the the Templars and the Deus Volt and everything has been has been widely co-opted by white supremacists. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and and the fundamentalist Christian right as well. Exactly. Apart from white supremacy itself, it to the point where in my profession, just where I work, I just I don't have. I don't feel like it's worth the risk to, I, I can never, myself, I'm never going to be able to put together an early, like a 12th century night impression, even if I wanted to, just because there's a lot of baggage there that I think would be, in what I do, could very quickly spiral out of control. And so I have myself experienced this point where like, yeah, there's a lot of negative content out there, which I just don't have time to untangle if I accidentally associate myself with some of those negative symbols regardless of whether or not i intended to and it some interpretations are becoming increasingly hard to to do because there's so much disinformation sort of swirling around them now um and that it's been easier to sort of propagate and and as ari and i always say it's easier to tell people you know, to, to teach them the right way first, then try to fix preconceived notions. Um, and it's on some places just becoming very a lot harder to to do to fix those preconceived notions. I, I do think things like for the ancient um, history, they aren't as far. I, I think there's some like Spartans for, I, for because of the movie, because of the movie, the 300 and the, uh, they just people just latched onto Spartans and it's like, they're like, Oh, they're the most badass ever. It's like, well, what about, <laughs> what about the Athenians? No, 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 Spartans better. Well, what about, what about the Thracian? You know, it's like, they were all, they were all badass. 
in their yeah. own way, in their own in when their own thing. So it's it, it's just it's it's really fascinating what people get, you know, hooked on and and what they run with. But sort of to steer away from the from the really heavy deep conversation. It's a good conversation to have, and I'm I'm glad Ari brought it up. But um, we don't want to focus mm-hmm. too much more of our time on it. What is the one thing that you think that somebody who's trying to get into, you know, ancient reenacting or, or, or Greek reenacting, what's the one thing you think you think they need to start off with? Research. I mean, it's just, it just boils down to that. Um, so I research your persona or your impression or persona, whichever you want to do. Um, figure out all the little details or as many details as possible you know yeah there's some ambiguity with certain things because you know these people have been dead for 2500 years and you know they don't have we don't have the same recorded uh sources that's you know say of some of the medieval stuff but there are there are a lot of sources out there i mean every day i'm discovering a new greek author that i just sit down i'm like oh this guy's really cool oh that's really neat um but like the one thing that i think a lot of people mess up on because of that is you know how like whenever you're doing an impression for the medieval period, if you're um, representing say a late 15th century or even a 16th early 16th century um, uh, Milanese knight, you're not going to wear hourglass gauntlets, from my understanding, right? That would be a little antiquated. Yeah. So just a touch. with that, I see a lot of these reenactors that will come out and they'll have Corinthian helmets, which is great. That's fantastic. But there's one little tiny, tiny subtle detail that throws off their whole impression is that I that uh, Corinthian helmets usually see two different types. You'll see one where they have the ear cut out so they can hear or the other. It looks like two thirds of a triangle that swoop up a little bit to a point towards the ear and then, on, you know, away. And that's the it is very easily to not notice. But if somebody who does know about it they're going to hone in on that and they're going to break down your entire impression. And the reason why I mention that is because if it has the ear cut out, that's the Peloponnesian War. That's the 430s to 404. If it's the little two-thirds triangle, that's the Persian War era. So there's different eras like that. And you're not going to see a hoplite wearing their great-grandfather's helmet, Um, not unless they, like, basically dug it out of his, his... tomb or something (laughs) um and on top of which is that like the shields everybody thinks that if they have to be a spartan whatever they have to get the lambda the the greek l on their shield no there's all sorts of different styles of um decal you can put on your shields and you know and research about them like one of my favorite ones is the uh or triskele uh which is three legs which basically means that um at it uh, it's like a it's fertility actually I mean, it's a fertility symbol. Um, or, you know, depending on who, who puts it on there, it could also mean, you know, I'm a fast runner or something. But uh, there's all sorts of details. Like, for instance, um, my another one is uh, during the Battle of Thermopylae, a Spartan got asked why he put a horsefly on his shield. And he said, the reason why I put it on there is because I'm going to get so close to the enemy that this horsefly will be a horse. So I think people need to research the different, you know, realize that there are different time periods and that while the armor may not have advanced as fast as say during the uh, medieval period it is still advancing and things are being done to constantly change and so if you want a good impression for persian wars 
study the actual arms and armor for that period. And same thing, you know, vice versa with the Peloponnesian, because if you mix and match those armors or decals and stuff, someone with the trained eye is spot it, call you out, and you're, you're not going to have a fun day. Definitely. I mean, they, they'll yeah, be we, nice about it, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I guess that that's an, unfortunately is the, uh, that that is a cultural thing we, we would hope to slowly eradicate is the people who are too critical in a in a negative way of somebody who very well may have just made a you know just be earlier in their journey than they are so but yeah we can definitely definitely understand that there's nuance and we see that obviously you know, we see it more in later eras as things change faster instead of being centuries between changes or generations between changes you start seeing major changes in the material culture within lifetimes or uh, things like that uh, you definitely see more of it as time goes on but i can totally resonate with the idea that there's going to be very subtle changes that tell a lot of story about an impression you know we talk about the research um a friend of ours mike baker did a, a great episode of his um new podcast the uh, deconstructing history and he talked about People, you know, when, when they're asked, how do I start out? And people saying, well, do the research. Do you have any tips of where people can start to do the research on there? What what things they should look at? Yeah. Um, so I recommend um, reading my, my favorite author, Herodotus's Histories. If you start by reading his book, it's very thick and it's very dense, but it's also very fanciful and colorful in a lot of areas, you know, like these ants that mine for gold essentially that's that's kind of fun um but he talks about you know in some areas the different arms and armor and equipment and the fighting styles and stuff and then even if you and if you want to go further go to or not further but closer in history and more present time thucydides histories of the peloponnesian war he does very similar but he he removes the fanciful stuff and focuses more on the actual arms armor warfare um, and what was going on with the people at the time. And then if you start with those guys, uh, they usually, you can usually um, find other people that are similar to them, and then they'll just start branching off, and the next thing you know, you have a spider web of different sources and informations. But Herodotus and Thucydides, those are my main two recommendations. Now, as we wrap up here, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about this new project you're coming up with, with the Living History Group that you are starting to assemble. So what is what is that that you're coming up with now, your new project? Yes, so the, um, back, back in April it was, I was getting ready to leave um, University of Missouri. I was doing a year as a post-baccalaureate to uh, you know, finish up my Greek and do some, uh, do some Latin. And as I was you know, getting ready to leave, I was like, well, you know, I'm becoming an adult, I guess. I need to start doing some stuff, but I want to have a hobby. And I've always been fascinated by, you know, knights and, you know, the um, code of chivalry and, you know, obviously like movies like Excalibur and stuff. I was like, these guys are really cool. And who doesn't, who as a kid does not want a suit of armor walk around and be like, haha, I'm slaying dragons. And so um, I spoke with my siblings, my older brothers, and some of my college buddies and coworkers that I, you know, worked with for my temp job. And they're all like, yeah, I've always wanted to do something like that. And I was like, well, you know, let's do it. And so we created this group um, 
it's called <laughs> to the audience listening it's a mouthful i apologize but i thought it was funny at the time the missouri order of moderately civilized night guys and we're focusing on late 15th century uh medieval um culture history you know material culture obviously and that's that's our that's what we're going for because you know i mean not that we don't appreciate say you know the crusades and stuff or the early crusades i should say you know with richard the lionheart we want to have you know the big full suits of plate armor and just walk around and you know look like stereotypical uh knight <laughs> So your group is an assemblage of knights. You're not trying to represent like a knight's household retinue, a lance. You're everyone involved. You're 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 appealing to people who are going to be that knight impression, and specifically each individual, right? Yes. So for instance, I am assembling a German Gothic armor set. Um, I I'm you know my family's from Germany. I speak German, so, and at and the, I mean, let's be real, the German Gothic uh, armor, you know, the fluting and stuff. I mean, it's just it's beautiful artwork. It's expensive, but it's beautiful artwork. And that's something that I just really appeal to me. Um, but I have. Um, my uh, half brother, he um, his father's from Spain, and so he's contemplating, you know, getting a set of Spanish armor. And uh, we have one guy who's looking at uh, Milanese and I'm thinking, you know, if we can get like. And if we can get all these different representations of the armors and stuff, we have a broader variety of speaking to people out during uh, Renaissance fairs or, you know, living history events to say, you know, oh, well, I focus on this. This is what, you know, my style is. But over here we have a guy who's um, a Spanish knight, you know, and he can tell you all about that. He is the subject matter expert. That is that's a pretty cool idea. I look forward to seeing how you guys progress and we're going to have links to things we talked about here, the Facebook group for your group. If anyone out in, in the local area is listening and is interested and reach out and contact, I just also want to really say thank you so much for coming out on the show with us. It was a really great conversation. I, I for one, learned a ton. There was a, a whole lot I did not have any idea about when it came to classical Greek living history. And I find it really interesting how many parallels there are. So it's not not as foreign as one might expect which is pretty cool no and i apologize for going on a million tangents can i just take one tiny tangent real quick that i think you guys will both love absolutely sure. please do yeah, go for it. so <clears throat> in sparta you know the other 300 and stuff well they were called well they were what's called the hippies and that is ancient greek for cavalrymen they didn't have cavalry but prior to uh the hoplites um becoming the prominent military force, the bodyguards of the Spartan kings, because there were two of them at any given time, um, were called the Hippes because they were cavalrymen. And so they were essentially the Greek knights. Huh, cool. Oh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that is really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, I would definitely, there's, I'm certain there's so much that we didn't even uh, get into. So there's, there's lots more to talk about, lots more to think about. But you know, your your time was valuable, and I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I I appreciate you guys having me on. I mean, I, I've been listening to you ever since I got, you know, started with the medieval uh, reenactment. You know, I, I just, I love your guys' podcast, and, you know, when I messaged you, I was like, oh, my God, I hope I can, you know, do this and be some, like, 
I'm, I'm fangirling right now, if I'm being honest. Like, These guys are superstars. <laughs> nah, well, you, you did great. This was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, it was, it was good really good to talk to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> you're welcome. You're, you're welcome. And good, if you All need right. help with the uh, 15th century stuff, feel free to reach out. Yeah, it'll be good fun. Yeah. Bye, All guys. Right. Thank you. Bye.